Take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. Paul has given instructions to Timothy as Timothy is acting as kind of a apostolic representative in Ephesus, he's giving Timothy guidance as to how things are to be done in Paul's absence. Chapter 3, there's the qualifications for those who serve as overseers as well as deacons. As we come to the point in our church life where we uh, nominate and have uh, an election for deacons, we bring them uh, to this point in the process because we've gone through a uh, nomination process, evaluation process, uh, self-assessment as well. And I uh, want to make sure that uh, those who are serving in office are um, qualified and certainly need to maintain qualification both for overseers and deacons. And I uh, just want to encourage you to be in prayer as we have our family meeting tonight. Paul says at the end of that section, he says in verse 14, I'm writing these things to you hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is how things are to be done. And uh, we're just trying to obey the Lord, trying to obey His Word. But then Paul says this, Verse 16, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This, of course, is Christ. This is a hymn to Christ. Paul uses... The phrase, great is the mystery of godliness. Using that word mystery, something Paul does in his other letters as well. And when we think of a mystery, we tend to think of something that's unknown or unresolved. Or if you read a mystery, obviously at the end you're going to find out if uh, that's what the author is trying to do, is tell you the mystery. Mysteries in Paul's writings are oftentimes open secrets, as someone has said. For instance, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he speaks about the mystery of the gospel. Well, the gospel's not unknown, it's known. Paul just is asking for the boldness to declare it. 1 Corinthians 15, he says to the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And then he explains, he talks about a mystery in Ephesians as well. And this passage is drawing attention to the mystery of the incarnation. That first line, he who was revealed in the flesh, that's a mystery that has been revealed. 
We've just sung about it this morning, number of times in the songs that we sang this morning, there were truths that we would not have guessed, we would not have known, unless God had revealed those things to us. And we have the mystery of the gospel. Another one is found in Galatians chapter 4. Let's think about this statement. Paul says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And that's a statement of the incarnation. It's an indication of God's plan, his relationship to Jesus, Jesus' identity and his purpose. One writer said, the simple phrases, sent forth and born of a woman, sum up the mystery of the incarnation. Just think about that. God sent him forth, and then he was born of a woman. The writer went on to say, the eternal Son of God was sent into the world through the process of taking a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. This fact is the greatest mystery of divine revelation. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, God the Son took to himself a human nature with a true body and a reasonable soul. As a result, he was one person existing with two distinct natures. We can read verses at times and even think about the Christmas story and because of its familiarity to us, we don't wonder at it. A child born of a virgin whose name is Emmanuel. I mean, just the miracle of the virgin birth, but then the child that's born is God with us. A child who is born a son of David, and yet that son of David is called the mighty God and the father of eternity. There's some wonder that ought to come into our minds when we behold these Christmas texts. And I say they're Christmas texts because they draw attention to the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation is the enfleshment or the coming in flesh. But this is God the Son who has existed for all of eternity with the Father and the Spirit. And in time, He is coming into the world according to God's plan. He is revealed in the flesh, as Paul says. And there are certainly many passages that we could turn to. Of course, the Gospels just tell us the story of the Incarnation from Uh, the standpoint of the birth of Christ. But leading up to those narratives of the birth of Christ are all of the prophecies, all of the passages in the Old Testament that foretold His coming, that foretold His kingdom, that foretold what He would do, what He would be like, who He is. And there are three truths I want to draw attention to Uh, today that just fill out our understanding from the Old Testament standpoint of the mystery of the incarnation. And that's the title of the message. Really, that uh, title could send us in many different ways in many different directions because we think about the incarnation. It's passages like Matthew 1 and Luke 1 and 2. It's passages like Galatians 4, 1 Timothy 3, Hebrews chapter 2. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7, many passages in God's Word. 
I want to start with Genesis chapter 3, if you turn back there. Genesis chapter 3. Mystery of the Incarnation in seed form, pun intended, is found in the first gospel, the proto-evangelium as it's called. Adam and Eve, of course, in the garden created perfect, but when Eve was deceived by the serpent, took of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and then gave to her husband. They sinned against the Lord. The Lord confronts them. And in the process of confronting them, there's blame shifting. And then there's the curse that the Lord utters, starting in verse 14. First of all, to the serpent. Verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So who is the Lord talking to? He's talking to the serpent. Who is the serpent? The scripture reveals more than one place that the devil is crafty. But in Revelation, he is revealed to be that serpent of old. Revelation says, John says in Revelation... And here's the declaration of the gospel, of the good news, of the incarnation to the serpent. Verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity, hostility is the idea, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. When you look at that word bruise in verse 15, you may see the word crush in the margin, a word that as you study the word and look at it in different places, uh, it can refer to a crushing, even a repeated battering, but also just simply a bruise, something that's harmful, but a bruise to the head, and based on the context and the broader word of God, And comparing passages, it does seem that what the Lord is saying here is that that bruise is a fatal blow in the sense of a defeat. So what we're looking at in verse 15 is a statement of the incarnation. And we can look at it from the standpoint of the broader word of God. This is a picture that God gives at the very beginning of Christ, who is the seed of the woman, gaining the victory because he crushes the head of the serpent. And at the same time he crushes the head of the serpent, there is a bruising of him on the heel, verse 15. There's some kind of pain inflicted. Derek Kidner, commentary on Genesis, called this the first glimmer of the gospel. Right on the heels of man's sin against God and the breaking of this perfect relationship, a destruction of what they had in righteousness. They sinned against God. They disobeyed Him. God is promising that there will be a reversal, that there will be victory. That the serpent, although he seems to have had the victory in these moments as he's tempted the man and the woman and they've sinned 
eventually there would be a reversal of that. And Christ would be the victor. The seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would have victory over the serpent. And some have said this is almost a, an, an, an insult, you would say, or a disgrace to this serpent who has gained victory over man. What God is saying in this promise is that one of her children is going to have victory over you. And it sort of puts the devil in a place where he is humble. And of course, that's exactly what our Savior did. There's two levels of hostility in this verse. If you look at verse 15, it's first of all enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, and the woman. And the context, verse 13, the woman, of course, is Eve. And I think what is being taught here, what the Lord is teaching, is that there would be an immediate reversal in Eve's life where she has listened to and succumbed to the deception of the serpent. There's going to be a reversal of that, and instead of trusting in the serpent, she is going to repent and turn. And there would be, where there seemed to have been collusion and partnership on the part of Eve and the serpent, there will then again be hostility, or there would be hostility going on. And we do see Eve, even in her giving birth to Cain in the next chapter, that she makes a statement of faith, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. We don't see all of that fleshed out in Eve's life, but I think that's what the Lord is saying about that immediate relationship. But then it says in verse 15, and between your seed, that is the seed of the serpent, and her seed. And this is where it gets a little challenging because as you see that word seed, that can either be a singular or it can be a collective. Seed as in multiple, plural, or a single one. And when you keep on reading, you learn at least that there is one singular being spoken of because when it says between your seed and her seed, her seed the pronoun that's used at the end of the verse is he. And so this is an individual who is the seed of the woman. There is conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is singular, and yet if you think about it, if we interpret that to be Christ... We understand, of course, that Christ, when he came and accomplished what he accomplished on the cross, he died on the cross, he rose again. All those who believe him are united with him. That there's a unity. Uh, there's a, that, that element of our being united with Christ and one with Christ that I believe, if we understand going into the New Testament, the implications is that, yes, he is one. He is the one who defeated the serpent. He is the one who crushed the serpent's head. But we, too, as we are united with Christ, participate with him. And why do I say that? If you take a, keep a finger here, turn over to Romans chapter 16. 
Romans chapter 16. Here's one of those passages that is an allusion to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Paul says in verse 19, For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you. He's talking to believers. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So you might say... Who's being spoken of here? Well, it's not Christ. It's the people who belong to Christ. The promise to the people who belong to Christ is that God is going to crush Satan, who's also the serpent, under their feet. It's part of the reason I think that some translate that word back in Genesis, crush, because of the illusion of this passage. But if you turn back to Genesis chapter 3... We could not do that by ourselves. There is no way that we could, apart from God, accomplish that. The devil is too powerful. He's too strong. Without Christ, there's no way that we could defeat the devil. But with Christ, what does Christ do? Take a look back at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So there's hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, her seed. And then it says, he shall bruise you on the head, or he shall crush you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. Again, there's a singular focus here of this person who, as he crushes the head of the serpent, he finds himself harmed as well. He finds himself in pain because of the... Uh, bruising or the snapping at the heel and the resulting pain inflicted from the serpent. So there's hostility. And in addition to hostility, there's the defeat. And I'll just draw attention to the hostility. Is there hostility between the people of God, those who belong to Christ, and the people of the devil and the devil himself? Yeah, there has been really since Genesis here. The very next chapter shows that there's a conflict between righteousness and light and darkness and evil. Cain, who is of that wicked one, John later says, kills the one who's offering a sacrifice to God. And within the word of God, there is this conflict just raging between the righteous and the wicked between light and darkness, between those who belong to God and those who are children of the devil. Christ, as he came in the incarnation, had a purpose, and that was to gain the victory. First John puts it this way, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews chapter 2, therefore, since, through the, uh, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also Likewise, partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. There's the hostility. Jesus comes, and as he comes, he's acting in hostility, putting uh, 
uh, on his agenda to destroy the works of the devil. This is opposition, hostility, it's certainly there. And in that conflict, this would be a destructive conflict for the devil because the devil is going to be dealt with on the head. Zwingli, as he commented on Genesis, this passage, he said the serpent's head was not crushed by the woman, but rather by her seed, namely Christ. The mystery here lies deeply hidden. For what was so great if there was hostility or treachery between the woman and the serpent? Here, already from the beginning, deliverance is promised, as well as that blessed seed through whom all the nations would be blessed. He says the devil is the prince of this world, under whose tyranny and power we were all taken captive until that blessed seed should be born from the woman, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus our Lord. Zwingli saw this text as revealing not only the hostility, but the victory of Christ over Satan. When did that take place? When did the bruising of the heel take place? And when did the crushing of the head take place? Whitfield, in his sermon on this text, he said, Satan bruised his heel when he tempted him for 40 days together in the wilderness. He bruised his heel when he raised up strong persecution against him during the time of his public ministry. He, in an especial manner, bruised his heel when our Lord complained that his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death, and he sweat great drops of blood falling on the ground in the garden. He bruised his heel when he put it in the heart of Judas to betray him, and he bruised him Yet most of all, when his emissaries nailed him to an accursed tree and our Lord cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the bruising we tend to think of as solely the cross, but it's really the sufferings of Christ because of sin. The sufferings of Christ and his humiliation leading to the cross, which is the culmination of the bruising of his heel, Whitfield went on to say, yet in all this, the blessed Jesus, the seed of the woman, bruised Satan's accursed head. For in that he was tempted, he was able to help those who were tempted. By his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him by dying. He destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He thereby spoiled principalities and powers and made a show of them openly, triumphing them over them upon the cross. He's just quoting there from Colossians. And yes, that is that great victory was the cross itself when Jesus obtained the victory in what you might say is weakness and suffering in those very moments that his heel is being bruised, he's gaining the victory. When you were dead... Paul says, in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is victory. This is the story of the incarnation. Now, it's not the only part of the story, but when you think of the seed of the woman crushing the head 
of the serpent. This is victory. This is, as one person put it, uh, Christus victor. He's won the victory. This is the promise of victory in the very beginning of time when God created Adam and Eve and they sinned against God and, and the devil seemed to have the mastery over them. Christ is promised to have the victory. Now, that being said, <coughs> we don't think of the atonement of Christ simply as victory. It is victory. There's a Swedish author who wrote a famous book about the atonement called Christus Victor. And if you read through, he's describing three different views of the atonement. And this one where Christ is the conqueror over spiritual enemies, he draws attention to that this is something that should be understood as one of the different views of how Christ did his work and what he did. And the problem is not so much what he said, it's that if that view alone informs our understanding of what Christ did, we miss something. What do we miss? We miss the bruising of his heel and the reason for the bruising of his heel. Why did he cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was he suffering in the garden with a sorrow that he said was almost to death? Why were Jesus' hands nailed to a cross? Why were his feet nailed to the cross? Why did he have a crown of thorns? Why was he scourged? Why all of that? Why did he have to die? Could he not have obtained victory some other way? Well, you might think in terms of the plan of God. I mean, why couldn't Jesus come and do conflict with the devil and use that mighty sword and his omnipotent power to defeat this creature that he made? What's the issue? The issue is sin. The issue is sin. We sinned against God. God is offended. God is angry against sin. Sin must be punished. Sin cannot just be dismissed. God cannot just be merciful without some consequence for sin. And so, yes, Christ is the victor, but the heel had to be bruised. And that illusion, obviously, it's a bruising it's something that will heal. We see, and I'm not trying to say this is all that the Scripture is, is revealing about this, but obviously we know that Christ had to die, and then he rose again. In other words, the, the death of our Savior was, yes, was it fatal, but it wasn't final because of the resurrection. And in the resurrection, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But how does he give it? He gives it through his death upon the cross. It is through death, Hebrews says, that he wins the victory over him who had the power of death. He takes the devil's weapon from him and uses it against him in his own death 
and rises again. There's no way that any of us could devise such a thing. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is a wonderful truth that God has given to us to help us to understand what he has done for us. And that's just one aspect. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. The seed of the woman. You follow that seed promise through Genesis. There's also the seed of Abraham. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Christ is the victor. Christ is also a blessing to the world as the seed of Abraham. These promises come to Abram. His name is later changed to Abraham. Abraham was an idolater before the Lord came to him, revealed himself to him, but Abram believed in the Lord. As this chapter begins and as it continues, you see the narrative of how Abram Not only came to know the Lord and follow the Lord, but as the Lord continued to deal with Abram, he gave him more and more promises. Turn, if you would, over to Genesis 15. Promises regarding a seed. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, it's not my own child. Verse 3, Abram said, Since you've given me no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, the one, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens. And count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, said to him, So shall your seed or your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And as he continues in that chapter, he makes a covenant with Abram and makes promises regarding his descendants. Turn over, if you would, to chapter 22. Chapter 22. God, of course, testing Abraham, eventually giving him Isaac according to his promise. But look at chapter 22 as Abram responds to the command of God to offer up Isaac, and he goes and he does. It's a wonderful chapter showing the obedience of Abraham based upon his faith in the Lord. The Lord asking for Isaac, but the Lord eventually taking a substitute in the place, and that's the gospel message there. But as Abraham obeyed the Lord and offered that sacrifice in the place of Isaac, but he had come to the place where he had willingly offered Isaac to the Lord. Look at verse 15. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn declares the Lord, 
Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The promise of the seed that's going to be a blessing to the nations, given initially in Genesis 12, reiterated here, is a promise that Abraham, through his seed, would be a blessing to the entire earth. How could that be? And we know it's not Isaac. We read the Bible's story. Isaac, of course, was a blessing to their family. But Isaac isn't the promised seed in the final sense. This is ultimately Christ. This is why Matthew begins his gospel and says that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's drawing attention to the royalty of Christ through David, but to Abraham as well as a fulfillment of this promise that would bless the entire world. And what a blessing the Lord Jesus is. You think about a blessing, you think about the benefits, you think about the good things that have come through Christ to this world. What do you think of? What is the blessing that Christ brings? What blessing has he brought to you? I mean, before we even think about the world at large, have there been any blessings that have come to your life because of Christ? Matthew one twenty one, the promise of the angel, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Is that a blessing? Have you been saved from your sins? Have you been rescued from not only the practice of those sins, but from the power of those sins and from the penalty of those sins? If so, you've been blessed. Peter said in Acts chapter 3 to the children of Israel that were listening to him, he said, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with our fathers saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you. How? Peter says, by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And that's a little different than just the penalty, isn't it? And it's a blessing to be saved from the penalty, from the eternal wrath of God in the lake of fire forever. But to be turned away from those wicked things that we do, from the iniquity of our heart, from the perversity of our heart, so that we don't practice those things anymore, that's one of the blessings. Are you experiencing that blessing? Sometimes people say that Christ has saved them, but they're still living in the sin that they lived in before, they're not turning away from their iniquities. They're either hypocritical or they 
aren't truly born again, if they are born again and they're still living, they're missing the blessing of being turned away from those things. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 is Paul is speaking to the Galatians. Mentions Abraham here. He asks them, how did you receive the Spirit? Verse 6, even so Abraham believed in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. He blessed you with salvation. He blessed you by turning you away from your iniquities. He blessed you with faith. And he says here, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. What are they blessed with? With justification. The gift of righteousness. Turning you away from your sins, but giving you a righteousness that can never be taken away from you. Talk about a Christmas gift. It's an eternal gift from God. For those who put their faith in Christ, they receive the gift of of righteousness, God looks upon that one who receives that gift and it's, they're justified. It's just as if they'd never sinned. And that's a declaration of God and he's not going to revoke his verdict based upon faith in Christ. Not only that, let's keep going in the passage. Verse 10, for as many as of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ (coughs) redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Notice this, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We're blessed with Abraham, we're justified, we're given the gift of righteousness. We're blessed by God This blessing of Abraham, the blessing to the world, including the Gentiles, not just the Jews, was the giving of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit. That's the blessing that comes upon anyone who puts their trust in Christ. Again, talk about a gift. Talk about a Christmas gift. The fact that Christ came into the world and did what he did, died upon the cross, rose again, and then on Pentecost poured out his spirit. And on every person who believes, they are given the Holy Spirit who never leaves, who guarantees the resurrection, who is there with us as a comfort and a help in life and is with us until we die and then 
causes us to be raised from the dead, Romans chapter 8, and is with us forever. Talk about a gift. Talk about a blessing to the world. And that's not it. What about the blessings that we have according to Ephesians 1? Election to holiness. Predestination to adoption as sons. Grace from God that He's lavished upon us. Redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. The knowledge of His will. An inheritance. And He says the earnest of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit. He has blessed us, Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace through Christ. Just far, how far do those blessings extend? Well, you can rejoice that God in His grace through your life will bless you. Mercies will be new for every morning. There's a promise of that. Jeremiah experienced that. When Christ pours out his wrath and then comes in the millennium, it will be a time like no other. There will be blessings on earth, a time of peace like has never been known because the Prince of Peace will reign. It will be a time not of sinlessness, but righteousness will reign on the earth. There will be the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will be able to play around the holes of poisonous asps and serpents and not be harmed. Why? Because the knowledge of Christ in this world will extend not just to humanity, but even the animal kingdom will flourish because of Christ's reign. There will be what the song says... No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Blessings on the earth in the millennium. Blessings at the end when he puts down finally the devil. But blessings also in the ages to come. What does he say in Ephesians? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing because of Christ. Now you understand you have to be in Christ. You have to know Christ. This promise of blessing is not for those who reject him. This promise of salvation is for those who only put their faith in him. It's not for those who turn from him. It's not from those who do not repent. No, they can expect God's wrath. They can expect eternal punishment away from the presence of God, away from His power and His glory, away from the experience of heaven, the glories of heaven and all of that. No, for someone who does not put their faith and trust in God, none of that will belong to you. None of that should you take hope in. 
unless you turn to Christ. But believer, beloved, you have a great hope. If you know Christ, you know the source of blessing and His blessing to us is daily. It will be according to our life in this world. It will be according to our life resurrected and our eternal life with Him forever. So rejoice and worship Him and be thankful. Don't have all these blessings and just stand by discouraged or down. These are the kinds of things that ought to lift us up and give us cause for praise even today as we worship the Lord. Paul, in his letter there to Galatians, draws attention to the blessing of justification, the blessing of the Spirit. In Ephesians, it's those eternal blessings, blessings in the ages to come, and those are worthy of our meditation even today. Take some time to consider what God has done. We've taken a little time, but the more you think about what God has not only done for you, but is going to do for you, that should motivate you to live for Him, to walk with Him, to serve Him, to tell others about Him so that they also can participate in these blessings, so the blessings would extend beyond your life and mine to others. That's the blessing of Christ. Turn, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. One more aspect of the mystery of the incarnation. I know we're jumping around to different passages today looking at various promises of God and truths about the incarnation. Look at 1 Timothy chapter Two, as he speaks about prayer, the importance of prayer in the life of the church, praying for kings, for those who are in authority. He says in verse 3, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. One of the mysteries of the Incarnation is this truth about Christ that He is a mediator. That He is, you might say, the go-between. There are other terms for His position as the one who goes between us and God. Advocate would be another term. But here He is called the mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ And then his human name, Jesus, Christ Jesus. We say the word Christ all the time. Do you remember what it means? It means the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. You might think, well, yes, he's the the king. Aren't kings anointed? Yes, they are. We tend to think of the royalty of Jesus when we think of Christ. And When we sing the songs that we sing around Christmas time, oftentimes it focuses on, the songs focus on that truth of his royalty, his kingship. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Wesley wrote another hymn, lesser known, to a child, to us a child of royal birth is the title. To us a child of royal birth, the heir of promise now is given. 
It's a reference to Abraham. The invisible appears on earth, the son of man, the God of heaven. And then this, I believe, is the third stanza. The Christ, by raptured seers foretold, filled with the eternal spirit's power. Great prophet, priest, and king, behold, the Lord of all the worlds adore. And what Wesley did there was, in part, draw attention to what the purpose of the anointing was. That symbol of anointing was a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. When the Spirit came upon someone, it empowered them for service. He empowered them for service. You see that in the Old Testament. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, was anointed by the Spirit. In fact, some would even say that the baptism of Jesus is misnamed because what happens in that scene is as he's baptized in the Jordan, the Spirit comes down upon him and rests upon him. And some have said that's really better viewed as actually the anointing of the anointed one. And it's from there that Jesus goes into ministry in power, the power of the Spirit. And he's empowered how? Well, Wesley says, great prophet, priest, and king, behold. And when you think about the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, he really does fulfill not just the kingship, and he is the king of kings, but also prophet and also priest. Prophet, priest, and king. He mediates to us God. As prophet, he speaks to us on behalf of God. As priest, he represents us to God. And as king, he rules over us for God. And we could take the time to look through the Old Testament and the New, but there certainly are indications that Jesus in his life and ministry and ministry even beyond the resurrection and into heaven is, is exercising uh, these offices. He's acting in these offices on our behalf. And he was promised to. This is something that the prophets in the Old Testament, it's another thing that Wesley drew attention to. He said, the Christ by raptured seers foretold. They saw this. And it's the mystery of the incarnation that there would be one who would come, who would speak to us on behalf of God. He would come and deliver the message from God to us. And he would also represent us to God as priest bringing, of course, himself as a sacrifice, but then being that intercessor, the one who intercedes for us and prays for us. And he's doing that now. He's doing that today. There's a sense in which he always will do that because he always, it's the scripture says, he, he ever lives to intercede for us. He's the one who is that go-between, who has accomplished redemption, and with his uh, successful intercession, if I could put it that, that way, we are rightly related to God. And then, of course, He'll rule forever and ever. I wish I had the time to go through all the passages with reference to His prophetic work, His 
priestly work, his kingly work. Let's just take a moment and turn to Psalm 110 and consider two of those. And Lord willing, we'll continue in this next week. Psalm 110. When you think of Jesus as prophet, Moses spoke about a prophet who would come like him. We will take and give some attention to that this next week. But when we think about the priesthood of Christ, think about the book of Hebrews, some select revelation in Genesis that God gave to us to help us understand something about the priesthood of Christ. But then the royalty of Christ as well. You can see the royalty of Christ here and other places in the Psalms, in Isaiah. Let's read through this psalm. David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. What is he saying? Well, the first thing that he draws attention to is the enthronement of Christ. And you remember reading this in Acts chapter 2? Jesus ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand and then pours out the Spirit... This is the enthronement of the king sitting on the throne of heaven with the father, with the promise that he is going to rule over his enemies and he's going to have people, a great company of people, willingly, voluntarily voluntarily serving him. That's the sense of verse 3. This is this king. But in the midst of this emphasis on his kingship, we find an oath. The utterance of God followed by the oath of God, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So this is an oath that helps us to see that the priesthood that Christ has continues forever. And for the Jews, they would have understood the priesthood, but they knew that their priests died. They even knew in the, the, the teaching of the law that their priests could not serve their entire life. They would start at the age of 25, they would go to the age of 50, and after 50, the priests could counsel and give help, but they were not the ones lifting the sacrifices and doing all of that intercessory work. The high priest certainly could continue, but he wouldn't either except for the responsibilities that he had. But basically, within the priesthood of Israel, priests died. They did not continue. You got a new one. That person was just a picture in God's plan of a priest who would come. But the better picture, based on the whole word of God, is this man Melchizedek. Hebrews speaks about him, but here Jesus is said to be the priest forever according to that order. A king and priest. Someone who would rule and also represent the people before God. Two offices, one person. 
and no corruption. When he says the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If someone had that much power within a nation, even just one office would do it in for some people. But not this one. Not this one who sits on the throne with the Father. No, this one would also be a priest. He would be a priest forever. And notice, he's not done once he becomes a priest with his battles. Look at the end of the psalm. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And when he's done, he'll take a drink and be refreshed. He will accomplish God's purpose. This is our high priest. This is our king. This is the Son of God through whom He has spoken to us and given us the way of eternal life. Rejoice in the Incarnation. This time of year is wonderful. We tend to fill it with lots of things that are trivial. Let's think about the mystery and rejoice in it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise You and thank You for the mystery of the Incarnation. We thank You for our Savior. We thank you that he is the seed of the woman and has, by your plan, crushed the head of the serpent. We thank you for the promise that one day he will completely put him in the lake of fire which burns forever and ever. Until then, Lord, we pray that we might take comfort in his power and victory Pray also, Lord, that we rejoice in the blessings that have begun to flow to this world, to those who belong to Him. We pray that we might urgently reach out with a message of salvation to those who have yet to experience that blessing. All they have is the tinsel, the wrappings, they've got the paper, the boxes. They don't have the gift. True gift. As we see people around us pretending to be cheerful, help us to remember we have the true joy that can never be taken away. And it is an eternal joy because it's fixed in the eternal one. Lord, as we think about the one mediator, if we have come to Jesus for salvation, we thank you that the promise that he is the way, the truth, and the life is true, that we can come to you, Father, we can speak to you, we can find refuge and safety in your salvation. And we pray that we might be diligent to not only believe that message, but to proclaim it. Give us grace. Help us today and through this season to rejoice in your goodness and what you've done for us in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me? Turn to 184, another hymn of Wesley. I think we know the tune, but maybe not the words.
Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Let's sing together.